Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Damien Cave is the author of Parenting Like an Australian, One Family's Quest to Fight Fear and Dive into a Better, Braver Life. Damien has worked for the New York Times since 2004, mostly as a foreign and national correspondent. He and his wife Diana were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting in 2008 with a team in Baghdad when covering the Iraq War, and since 2017 they have lived in Sydney, Australia with their two children. On most days they can be found in the water or planning some kind of trip to somewhere adventurous. Welcome, Damien. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss parenting like an Australian, one family's quest to fight fear and dive into a better, braver life. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So you start the book with an offer to go to Australia for the times and your wife and you are in New York and she's not sure 
you're not sure she's going to want to leave. And you, you have this very lovely meditation on the pros and cons of New York City, which is a native New Yorker. I very much appreciate it. And then of course you go to Australia and learn so much from everything, from how kids learn to swim, to politics, to everything else. How did you decide to turn this into a book? And when did you do the book? And Tell me anything else related to the book. Yeah, you know, it's I've been thinking about risk, I think, for a while and parenting. And so my wife, Diana, and I, after we moved from covering the war in Iraq to Miami, to a, a place which has a very different set of risks, and we had our kids there, I started noticing that maybe our thoughts about risk seemed to be slightly different from some of the other parents in our parenting groups. So I think I started to think about it then, but I then I sort of forgot about it and just got busy and did what every parent does is just try to survive those first few years. But when I came to Australia, it just really was kind of a different confrontation about parenting and risk and community and all these things that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I think the book kind of grew out of an experience where right after I threw my kids into nippers, into this like junior life-saving program that apparently every Australian does, or at least every Australian in my neighborhood And I wrote this like small, you know, missive, this sort of newsletter thing that we had for the Times at the time, you know, a few hundred words dashed off quickly. And the response was really overwhelming. Like a lot of Australians and Americans got in touch with me and said, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about it this much. This is just something we take for granted. The way that kids sort of deal with risk collectively, the way that parents participate in this whole process in a way that they don't if they're just standing on the side of a soccer pitch. And so all of that got me thinking, well, hey, maybe there's something here. And then that was sort of confirmed when my son challenged me to actually join this crazy culture of surf lifesaving, and I failed (laughs) at the first (laughs) time. So at that point, I was like, all right, maybe I should just start taking notes. Maybe there's something here that other people can learn from, not just my own failures, but this experience of being, you know, I describe it ends up point like it's not like a fish out of water. It's like a buffalo trying to learn how to swim. <laughs> and so that's sort of what it felt like for us trying to embrace the culture of Australia, both in the water and as parents and as citizens, too. It was just really confronting in ways that I didn't expect. Wow. Quick question. How do your wife and kids feel about you writing about them? Was that ever a question? You know, I had them I had them read it, of course, when, when it sort of came up as a possibility. I had them read, you know, the relevant sections and my kids just thought it was kind of weird. Like, why are you doing this? This seems boring to me. <laughs> and uh, and my wife and I had intense conversations about, about it. In some ways, it helped sort of put the whole process into perspective. You know, she's a filmmaker and a, and a creative journalist and has done a lot of things. She works in the books industry now. And so she had a lot, a lot of input. Initially, like back in the day when we thought about writing a book, we thought about trying to do it together. Mm. So she was totally very, very involved. And I think it sort of clarified what the experience meant to both of us to have her so involved. But, you know, it's it's a funny thing. Now my kids are a little bit older and they've gone back to some of the sections and, you know, they start to, they were fighting the other day about who was the real star of the book. <laughs> so they don't seem to mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. How did it feel going from journalistic tendencies and shorter pieces to long form like this and really sort of delving in and going over different topics and tracking things over, you know? Yeah, good question. I mean, honestly, for me, it was really hard. Like one of the hardest parts of the book was learning how to sort of let go of my third person neutral observer role about sort of observing the world and and kind of dive into what was going on in my own head and, 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 and just finding a voice for myself was like a lot harder than I expected. 
I do think my wife was quite helpful in that. And she just kept help, kept telling me, just keep going and be more honest is what she kept saying. And so I, I do think that was quite helpful. But, you know, it is it is one of those things where you're, I, and this is sort of what the book is about too. It's about me letting go a little bit of that like observer role. I mean, Australians demand that you participate, you know, like they throw their arm around you and they put you behind the grill and they tell you to cook sausages and they throw you in the water and they expect you to do a lot of things that Americans I think are, hesitant to impose on you. And so part of it was both in writing and in my personal experience, I had to let go of that individualism. I had to let go of that American sense of, oh, don't bother them. Don't impose, let them do their own thing. Because Australians just don't think quite as much that way. There's a real sense of, no, we're in this together. And whether you know how to do it or not, doesn't matter. Like you're going to learn and you're going to learn with me. So that's that both in both writing and experience, I had to do that. So as not just swimming related and what, how have you seen the, where are the long-term effects of being exposed to a different type of parenting? Like what have you adopted for good in your own house? I think generally trying to be a little less stressed and a little more willing to like, let my kids explore and to trust a bit more that somebody else might pick up the pieces if something goes wrong. You know, and I've seen that happen. I mean, this happened after I finished the book, but my son was skateboarding, you know, in the middle of Sydney, like taking public transportation. He's 11 years old. He's with his friends. He's out for the day and he breaks his arm. Oh. And we get this frantic call from one of his friends saying, oh my God, Baz broke his arm. And I can't figure out what they're saying or where they are. And then suddenly this other dad who I've never met gets on the phone and says, hey, listen, he definitely broke his arm. I'm trained in first aid. You're definitely going to need him to take to the hospital. I don't think you need an ambulance. I'm going to sit here with him until you get here. And so this dad, when I got there, he had like two toddlers who were sitting there with him. And he just stayed with my son for, you know, for a half hour or longer until I got there. And like, that's the way the culture works. Like when people need help, you help them. And so, you know, one of the things I think I've adopted is just allowing that optimism in human nature to dominate how I parent and to allow my kids to really, you know, test themselves, make mistakes and trust that there will be some other people around who will help them out. And then I guess that's one thing. Another thing I think too is, to just remember to keep pushing into places that are uncomfortable, you know, whether for my son, it's public speaking and debate or my daughter, it's team sports, like not being afraid to really push them. And, and then in the long run, knowing that that's probably going to be okay. Having come from suddenly being forced and pushed into things by Australians and realizing that even as an adult, that's a good thing. And I guess the third thing related to that is that, you know, sometimes we talk about parenting as if it's always our relationship to our children, how we talk to them, what we tell them to do. But I actually started to think after doing this book that a lot of what we need to do as parents is be better models for our kids about how to live a rich life. And so sometimes throwing yourself into things that are risky, throwing yourself into things where you're a beginner again, where you don't know everything, where you're you know, your kids see your humility and your failure and your ability to overcome that. Like in a lot of ways, that does a lot more than saying, hey, have a growth mindset and be resilient, kid. So learning to live a better life as a, as a parent, as an individual and as a citizen, I actually think is another thing that my wife and I have tried to adopt as much as we can. That's a lesson I need as well. <laughs> Everybody does. It's hard. You know, I you're know. so busy in your lives. And <laughs> so I know I do try to like share. I have four kids and I do try to share. And I'm like, you guys, I tried this thing at work. Like, what do you think? Like, let me have your, you know, what I, it might be a total failure. What, I don't know. Should I try it? What do you think? So. Yeah, exactly. And I find, I mean, I don't know if this is the case for you, but I found I learned a lot 
from the wisdom of my kids. Like there, there were various times along the way in this process where I didn't think they were processing this. And then they would just come out with this bit of childhood wisdom that like really resonated for me. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's worth giving them that opportunity. That's true. That's true. Do your kids have any reading, any writing on their horizon? Like, have you raised writers? Uh, you know, it's a good question. My my daughter in particular, she whenever she does her writing stuff for school, creative writing or uh, or English, she tended to write really long. So she asked me to sort of edit it, and and she she's the one who like in her spare time will like I'll find these notes in her room of her processing out some narrative or some story or something like that. So she sort of got that brain. Um, my son is much more fact based. Like he's a really great writer about history, and he's like really into history. So. Yeah, they're both they're both like remarkably good at it. Actually, I mean, I think I probably I put a lot. I probably put pressure on them. But I just I want to read everything they write, and so I imagine that that you know makes it makes it harder for them sometimes. But it's great. I mean, like I said, I, I learned so much from from their writing, and seeing them improve is like such a thrill. That you know, trying to teach them that writing is something that we all can do in life, whether you become a writer or not, and that you're going to need it no matter what, despite the fact that no one is studying English anymore at universities, learning how to communicate and and tell stories is important. Yeah. And when did you learn that? Like, when did that, when did you get that bug? You know, for me, it started pretty early. My grandfather was this old, you know, World War II depressionary guy who used to just sit me in bed when I was a kid and tell me stories. Some of them were total kids fiction stories about Frank Fox, the Foxy Fox, but some of them were, you know, about growing up in Brooklyn and, and learning how to be honest in difficult circumstances and and a whole bunch of things. And he just he couldn't help himself. Like whenever I was around him, he would tell stories. And so to some degree, I think that was the origin for me. But I didn't really get into journalism and writing until pretty late. You know, I was an English major. I thought I'd go to law school and sort of fell into journalism and loved the fact that it meant I could explore the world, loved the fact that I didn't have to sit behind, you know, a desk all my life. And yeah, at various points, I've been an editor, I've done other things, but I, I, the writing bug doesn't seem to go away. So I'm, I'm stuck with it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe 
three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time was writing for the times like your childhood dream type of thing no strangely enough i mean i i actually i worked i I started my career at a small newspaper in new hampshire and swore i'd never work for a newspaper again because they were (laughs) too rigid and too old-fashioned and not changing fast enough so i i actually wrote for the web and and uh and magazines and was perfectly happy doing that uh, until kind of 9-11 and all of that happened and I started to feel like I needed to get out in the world and, and the, the big sort of newspaper institutions were the ones more likely to send you around the world. And so, you know, now for most of my career at the times I've spent outside the United States. So it's 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 worked out, but it's never the place I, I always expected to be. I do love it. It's a family, but as my editor at some point said to me, it can't be your only family. So, it, you know... <clears throat> It's a good and wonderful and amazing place with lots of colleagues, but it's not the only place to be in good journalism. Interesting. So now that you've done a book, are you thinking about more books? Are you thinking about more reported things? I mean, I know you have a whole chapter on your trip to New Zealand and like what that was like and covering all of that. Like, do you want to just, I don't know, what's, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I, th- I learned, I did this book in part, I think, to learn how to do a book. It's something I wanted to do. And, and I, I ended up choosing a challenge that was more than I even expected. Trying to sort of blend memoir and social science and history was was enormously challenging. So I think the next book I've thought about is it would either be something that's like very straight journalism, very clear around, you know, it could be anything from changing geopolitics to demographics, something that's like reportage, but with a clear nonfiction, here are 10 chapters in 10 places and structure, you know, or, or something that is, you know, more argumentative and that has like a clear, a clear sort of point of view. And again, is sort of less, less about me, basically. I think, I've, I think I'm done for a bit <laughs> writing about, it's directly about me, but I do think I learned a ton. I mean, I think writing a book like this, when you're used to writing the kind of formal pieces that are required for the New York Times, opens up your writer, your writerliness, I suppose, a bit. And so I feel like I've actually taken a lot of what I've learned from writing the book in terms of style, in terms of like finding that balance between my own perspective and third person perspective and and, and actually put it into the Times. And so you know, I, I have a big travel piece coming out soon that's about our family road trip to Western Australia in a van. And in many ways, it feels like an extension of the book. And so, you know, I'm finding ways to kind of insert some of what I've learned into other writing, too. If the time needs an essay about traveling to Tokyo with kids, I just wrote one. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah. Tokyo's yeah. great. Tokyo's amazing. I was there in January with our with the family, too. And it was amazing. Great city. Yeah. We survived. That's amazing. In the in the beginning of the book, you you 
very quickly skate past the loss of your mother, which I imagine brings up much more than you wrote about perhaps on purpose, but you wrote about how she had been hit by a car tragically trying to get back to a halfway house and her drug addiction and everything. I was wondering if you are willing to talk about that and you totally don't have to. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I mean, you know, my mother was this figure who was sort of in and out of my life. My father was much more present uh, although the way he describes it, the way he ended up with me was just that he was slightly messed up, slightly less messed up than she was. So, you know, they were hippies who met in Jamaica, married literally six weeks after they laid eyes on each other. So, you know, I think that the probability of the marriage working out was low <laughs> from the start, but they ended up with me. Right. And so my mother, I think, was always trying to figure out how to live this creative wild life and that and yet also be a parent. And uh, at various points, she did it well. At various points, she did not. And as as she got older and I got older, my grandparents basically sort of said, okay, now it's up to you to sort of help manage the situation. And so I think I, I, know I learned a lot at that point about what it means to not just be a child, but also almost be a parent for a parent. And so, you know, when she was evicted and, and getting her into halfway houses and doing all of these things was really challenging for me. But I do think, you know, when you go through these difficult circumstances, and there's like a little hint of this in some of the research in the book, you know, a little bit of adversity actually makes you a better person. And so in, in, in some ways, like, I think I learned how to deal with that. And, you know, and as a journalist, it's just, it opens up like a whole nother range of, of humanity who I, who I can connect with and who I can talk to. And, you know, whether it's in the streets of some poor town in New Jersey or Haiti after an earthquake or, you know, Iraq and the war, like the sort of heart that I think I have for journalism and telling stories, sometimes I feel like people can sense that there's this sort of hairline fracture in my soul that comes from my mother and that they can connect with me because despite that New York Times title, like there's something different about this person. And so to some degree, I think of that as a gift that my mother gave me without really intending to. But it took a while to get there. You know, I think, you know, having that sort of experience of, of it, I was, it's, it's funny, just the other day, I was cleaning out some of my old files and found all these notes that I had taken when she was calling me and, you know, in the midst of difficult times, and there's almost a humor in it too. And that I, so in some ways, like, I think I've gotten to a place where I'm able to sort of appreciate just how much she tried to live her life. And, um, you know, her death was a surprise, but in some ways it's a miracle she got as far as she did. <laughs> so she's, she, she had a toughness to her too, that I think I always appreciate as well. That expression, a hairline fracture of my soul. That's that's good. You should write that essay. Yeah. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't used that before. So yeah. Write it down. That was a good one. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I joke, but I think it's so relatable, right? Everybody who has experienced a profound loss, right? Because it's it's something that it's hard to see and yet felt all the time and sometimes hard to repair. So no good treatment. Yeah, Just exactly. Like, so. And in some ways, like, you know, what I was trying to do with my kids with, with risk is I, I want them to be strong enough to handle whatever life throws at them, you know? Yeah. And like one of the reasons why it's not a good idea to keep your kids away from risk and hardship is because then when the real hardship comes, they're not ready and they're not able to deal with it. And like, you know, there's tons and tons of research that basically shows that that kids who are exposed to sort of challenges early in life and have exert some level of control over it and overcome those difficulties are stronger throughout the rest of their life. And it doesn't have to be directly related. So if you get really good at dealing with the fears of sharks and waves, you're also probably going to be good at dealing with, you know, seeing something tragic happen in your life. And so in some ways, there's enormous hope in that, you know, that like the human spirit is strong enough to overcome small challenges in order to prepare for big challenges. And so 
It's something that you forget, I think, as a parent and as a human, but it's actually kind of hardwired into us. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting after you've had to parent your parents to then go on and write a whole book about parenting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I mean, you know, the, everybody's had periods where I think they feel like they're parenting their parents, but um, it just comes at different times for all of us. Yeah. I interviewed this morning, Andrew Ritker, who wrote a novel. This is like completely different, but this, his whole approach to parenting or not parenting, but his parents was talking and he put it in his novel is about like kind of making these protective rooms where he would sort of go in when something in his family was like, somebody was driving crazy essentially, although he said it nicely about his, his family and that that was like a trick that he used. And then of course the character in the book uses it. And it's like, we all are taking the devices that we use and the tricks and tools that we've had to develop to cope with whatever our families bring. And then somehow we have to like share them in, in books for the rest of the world. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I had a professor once who said, you know, writers have a, a teacher preacher complex. Like they're constantly trying to help others, even, even though they're trying to help themselves at the same time. Yes. Very interesting. Amazing. All right. Well, what's your parting advice for aspiring authors? You know, I think don't give up and keep keep sort of mulling over the ideas. Like one of the things I think that took some getting used to for me as a you know daily newspaper journalist is the time frame of a book mm-hmm. is so much longer and slower and it gestates in a different way. And I guess be okay with that. You know, like for me, it took a while. I was started thinking about risk many, many years ago. The book took a couple of years. You know, it's still, I still get emails from people who like saw something about it, you know, in Australia when it published before it published in the U.S., and just being okay with like the slow process and actually embracing that is like one thing, one piece of advice I would give to people. And the second thing I would say is try to land on a structure as quickly as you can. <laughs> so the stress of like both writing, researching, and figuring out the structure is a lot. And sometimes a, a simple structure will, will, will go a long way. Once I sort of figured out the structure of this book, it got a lot easier. So maybe that's just me, but I think slow down, allow for the time and and try to figure out what the structure is as soon as possible are my two pieces of contradictory advice. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Well, thank you so much. I love it. Uh, Parenting like an Australian, hoping to, you know, extract some of the things I learned into my own overprotective parenting and get a little bit better at modeling some of the risk-taking myself. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great chat. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.